0: Welcome everybody to First Principles Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to analyzing environmental and economic issues from First Principles. Today... We will be discussing the premise of sustainability. Sustainability, it is something that's widely discussed nowadays, whether it's corporations talking about how they're going to be more sustainable with their business practices, or it's governments that want to be more sustainable, or um, you know, environmental groups that demand for sustainability with energy and uh, waste and all these various assets, even a- economic sustainability. Uh, Uh, Social sustainability is just a term that's used quite a lot. So we want to look at what sustainability actually means, um, maybe from a broad lens and also looking at it more from an energy environment point of view. And um, yeah, that's just kind of going to be the episode. Any thoughts on that, Elliot, before we jump into it in uh, in depth?
1: Just that sustainability is definitely a buzzword. Mm -hmm. Uh, in uh in the corporate world you know uh, when you uh are looking at uh analyzing the future of your company analyzing how to make it better there's always a discussion around uh sustainability whether it's economic sustainability business practice sustainability sustainability of doing the type of work you want to do into the future That third thing so um with the, the the amount of use of the word sustainability, you think there'd be a, a good understanding of what that word means. However, I often think uh, people miss the ball when they talk about sustainability.
0: Yeah, sustainability, man. It really is a buzzword. That's a good way to describe it, and it's uh, used in, um, I believe, in a in a very disingenuous way sometimes. And um, but so let's uh, talk about that a little bit um, because sustainability as a a broad term right it's 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 the broad term and then we have these uh things that are added to the front of it um i forget the term right now but you know you have environmental sustainability economic sustainability the uh whatever sustainability so there was a uh, commission uh, that was done back in 1987 in order to define what sustainability actually is
1: Oh, interesting
0: and Back in 1987, the former prime minister of Norway, I believe, um, his last name was Brundtland, and the commission of the report is named after him. And it's called the Brundtland Commission's Report, which uh, defines sustainability as um, a means to meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. Sorry, let me read that again because I totally butchered that. But uh, meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. Hmm. So super broad term. And uh, I just want to maybe dissect that a bit further because even though this was defined back in 1987 it's still ubiquitously used when people define uh, sustainability and if you were to look uh, up what is uh, sustainability if you were to google that this uh, definition would uh, likely come up in your search um so do you have any thoughts on that that, that come off of the top of your head when you hear that definition uh, elliot for um just like what what is your initial reaction when you hear that for example
1: Well, right off the bat, you know, I think about economic sustainability. Mm -hmm. A big problem right now is that a lot of businesses are based around the infinite growth. We need to do better, make better profits each year. So the infinite growth model uh, leads to situations where uh, currencies – financial, um, markets collapse, uh, under, under these different sort of pressures. And so one way of, you know, one problem you run into, is like one, is it really sustainable to, uh, if, if your, um, business is, is growing, but it ultimately takes down another business. Um, when you look at that definition it's kind of broad so it's saying that would not be considered a sustainable practice because you're supposed to be looking at uh uh, everyone's future potential is that
0: not Mm -hmm. what what it says yeah you're compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs right right so yeah by by virtue of having competition and there being winners and losers you do have like somebody's future being compromised so I think you, you poked a hole in that definition if anything it sounds like
1: well I don't know if it necessarily uh, I poked a hole in the definition I, I'm just I, I poked a hole in the fact that uh, you know sustainable for one uh, entity isn't sustainable for all entities right That's, it was my, my main observation there right
0: right and I think it's a valid uh, observation because uh, I think it is true because, you know, what is sustainable for one might not be sustainable for, for another. So it, it does kind of lead towards my general thesis or my general idea of this definition is that it is very, very broad and uh, all-encompassing. And uh, it's, it's kind of – but I guess if you're trying to de- define sustainability like on a broad scale – Is it just like, it when when you actually break it down. So let's look at what it says. Meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. So what I think about is, for example, mining, right? And essentially, when you have a mine, what are you doing? You're taking resources out of the ground and you're using them for some sort of purpose. So when we have... Mining that occurs currently when we're taking out gold or gold or lithium or manganese, whatever rare earth metals. And if we're to take that and look at it from a sensitivity analysis, where you would take it to its natural conclusion, its logical conclusion, its extreme uh, point would be that we are taking these resources and by. Some date in the future, we don't know when that date is going to be, but they're going to run out of these resources. Right, they're going to be depleted. They're going to be depleted, right? Because if you think that there's going to be an oil crisis, then likely you also think that there's going to be a, a shortage in other metals as well. Um, just because, you know, there's only so much that the the Earth has to offer in terms of its natural resources. So I go, I'll go back to the definition of without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. So when I think about like an example such as mining, where if you were to take it to its logical extreme, its logical conclusion, do do that sensitivity analysis and analyze what would a mine look like to its end point, or what would mining look like to its end point, we I would I would argue that we come to the understanding that it's Going to deplete all the resources, and those future generations aren't going to have access to those resources. So, when you look at this definition again of meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs, it's kind of almost the definition, it, it's just, it's essentially it, it doesn't apply it was i guess what i'm trying to get to. I'm trying to think of a nice way of saying it but it's just kind of um almost bs because by virtue of anything that you're doing you're compromising the future generation and their ability to do that same thing so that's kind of like the the understanding that i came to that this definition on this face value sounds good but when you I don't know for me when I was thinking about it and like if you take it any anything to its logical point or to its logical end like if we take the limit of something uh, like to its end conclusion we get to a point where there is no more of that resource left so by definition you've compromised the ability of future generations to meet their needs so then you're not sustainable so then nothing is sustainable
1: well this is where I would disagree (laughs) okay So let's go back to the scenario you laid out. You have a mine. You're extracting resources from it. If that resource, there's a finite amount of that resource in that location, in that mine. Over time, you get all of it out. You mine it, you put it into components, um, and those materials go in the world and they meet people's needs, whether it's whatever, electronics, components for your electric cars, whatever. If those uh, end of life of those material items, if those resources aren't uh, captured again, that is a complete loss of that material. And that's the loss of that, of. Uh, or if the process of making something destroys the fundamental structure of it, like uh, burning gasoline destroys the hydrocarbon molecule, then you are losing it. But if you are are creating a system that isn't linear that you are recycling and reusing then you theoretically haven't lost the the uh resource uh, you have depleted that resource in that location so no, no future generation is able going to be able to mine there again because there's nothing there to mine but the point isn't mining the point is meeting the needs of people so the ultimately the the real problem arises is is after you extract a finite resource from a location on this planet, what do you do with it and how do you dispose of it? If, if you don't if you're not doing things that are conducive to it being reused, then ultimately we, we we travel in this unsustainable direction. But if you can find a way to reuse, recycle it, then you could theoretically meet the needs. Of people, because that's what I want. To, I want to point out with this definition, which I, I hadn't heard before, mm-hmm. but is they're focusing on the needs. So it's like one thing to say you're removing an opportunity. Let's say people desired the ability to mine at that location. Yes, you've once one generation does that mining, another one's not going to be able to mine there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But if it's not so much about the mining, but about what that mining is doing what the resources are being used for to meet needs, then the argument goes towards what's happening. What's the end use of the resources?
0: I think I think two points there. So one is um in reference to the actual end use and the disposal. Uh but I wanna put, put a pin on that. And I want to talk about more about the actual premise of one hundred percent a closed loop of a resource so um that yeah so it's a good point like we could we could potentially get in into that place where we are using Mm -hmm. like for example aluminum right you have like 100% theoretically recycling of that um but then I go to the, the issues with that is that on a theoretical level, it might be true that you can recycle it 100%, but then you're also tied to human behavior and how do people actually dispose of that aluminum? Are they throwing it in the garbage? Are they throwing it into the recycle bin? And then um, what's the city's capability to then sort and manage these things after the fact? Uh, It's very heterogeneous. Right. There's a a lot of loss along the way. There's a lot of loss along the way. So it's um, essentially something that is an unattainable goal is kind of what i'm getting to that sustainability is almost like a horse uh not not a horse it's like that that first high on heroin and like you're trying to catch something that you maybe thought you had at one point and you can never get back to no matter how many times you try again right you're chasing about, that that initial feeling or yeah that, yeah this, this, this idea is like you know not not the best because like example because there's not that, that initial feeling that you can correlate with no in but this it's case, it, but
1: it's it's the diminishing returns mm-hmm. av- after you repeat the same technique technique or process again yeah so can i just jump in here quickly
0: uh sure okay
1: so i just wanted to say um when you look at something like a, a tree, right? Uh, when we talk about a sustainable material object, there's one way of thinking the thing has to last forever. You're building something that's so robust, it's never gonna break, it lasts forever. A tree though, is another type of uh, sustainable system in the sense that it's expected that you're gonna lose those leaves, they're gonna fall off, they're gonna go down to the ground, break down, become the fundamental building blocks again to re-nourish that tree right so -hmm. there there are systems there's things that have to last for set last forever but there's also material items that if they do um uh, they don't have to have a life that lasts forever but they the what they have to be able to do is 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 uh break down into components that can be reused again biologically it's really easy to do but for some of these specific things that we're talking about um like mechanical things, electronic things, the idea of getting to hundred percent recovery, recycling recovery, maybe it's technically possible, but economically and like in the wor- world of re- realistics, re- realistic scenarios, yeah. I should say it's, it's not possible. So you're always going to have losses. Now, always always so yeah. so right there with, with that those examples of 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 losses you cannot have sustainability in that purest of forms unless there is sufficient uh, f- f- efficient no I should say, Going back to the needs, so we're talking about meeting people's needs. If Even if the losses occur, but needs are still met, then under that definition, you are maintaining sustainability. Yes, resources are being lost, but if—
0: I go back to my—yes, you can do it for a certain period of time, but that's why you— I go back to doing a sensitivity analysis and taking it to like its limit. Take that idea to its limit. Mm. Take it to its like natural course. Okay, you run that scenario, and until it gets to its logical conclusion, right? That's what that's the whole premise of a sensitivity analysis is like: how does the system react if we take a variable and take it to its most extreme point? So, yes, it's in that scenario you're diminishing your resource but you're still meeting the needs true but for how long you keep you keep going you keep going essentially at one point you're going to deplete it and, and the needs aren't going to be met so if you take that approach to its conclusion unless you have a new source that that is found right so you you have another source of of lithium that's found you have another mine of oil that's found another deposit whatever um, but again when you take it to its natural course when you let the simulation run into infinity at some point that does run out and unless you're getting um, mining from like an asteroid or something of, of that nature which potentially could be happening uh, yeah it like, by definition, like nothing is, is sustainable because, but or by the use of this definition, because it is so broad, right? Again, meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. Future, how far into the future? Again, what are we talking about? Let's take it to this like rational conclusion to this rational end. So,
1: well, what's also very tricky about that is knowing what the needs of the future will be.
0: True. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe we come to a point where um, future generations don't even operate off the same systems as now. And we've moved away to different modes of operation where the current resources that we're fighting over are irrelevant and no longer necessary. So yeah, the, 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 the it could change for sure.
1: But one of the things I want to throw in here is a scenario like this. Let's say what is needed is a shovel it's a tool it, it you can dig holes with it right shovels are made out of a wood for the handle maybe steel for the uh for the head the blade mm-hmm. let's say we were to in some crazy circumstance run out of steel if we the day comes that we're running out of steel we would start to find something else to make it out of. We're going to make it out of uh, plastic. We're going to make it out of, um, pottery, <laughs> clay, clay, <laughs> right? Uh, terrible idea, but let's, the idea is we still have the shovel. We still have the tool. We can still dig the hole. Yes. We've diminished the material typically used to construct that tool, but our needs are still being met and the tool is still being created. So it's 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 materials sustainability in the form that we use that mater- uh, that material is unsustainable.
0: It, the thing is though that those materials do f- serve a, a, a purpose. So you can't, it's not sim- as simple as like, okay, we're gonna substitute this steel for clay. <laughs> like, try as to a do it, terrible example <laughs> on my part.
1: Terrible example on my part. But there are other, there are other many components to, um, try dismantle. to build your business with clay, so let's see how that goes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But again, it's just like the same, uh, you go to the, again, take that to this logical con- con- conclusion. It's okay, you're subbing out components, subbing out components, Putting aside the fact that um, you know, if if you have a, a shovel and it's made out of plastic, that plastic comes from oil, and oil again take that to this logical conclusion, it, or to this to, to infinite point, it's it's used up, and you have no more uh, oil in order to refine and make your plastic, right? Uh,
1: right. Oh, so, and okay, what I realized, uh, unconsciously, I was making an the argument that we will always. Uh, innovate or adapt out of um, out of a problem. And the uh, this is a classic argument that gets brought up when we talk about sustainability and, um, because I think what will come from the type of thinking that you're you're doing is that there is if you if we realize how how ultimately, there will be this depletion. Then there becomes greater motivation to extend as much as possible the the materials that we do have, and that is ultimately a healthier and better way to look at um uh, uh, at, uh at 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 the, at maintaining our resources from that perspective instead of just we can use use use. And if we deplete them, we'll find something else to substitute for them. That type of thinking, you can see how that gets – that could be problematic.
0: How, how so? What do you mean?
1: So if, 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 if you never felt the need to limit, um, limit how much of a resource you took because your thinking is we have a lot of it. And the day we start to run out of it, we're going to find something else that will replace it, that will do the equivalent thing. Then you will uh, ultimately push off a problem based on this potentially false uh, uh, solution, which is that you're going to find a replacement for it. But sometimes you don't. It, it, It often is the case that you can, but
0: it's not a guaranteed thing right but that way of thinking can then make you think like okay then sustainability is the way to go so we got to be sustainable with the way that we're using resources but as i just pointed out that's also a dumb metric to use you feel me so what i'm proposing is that two things can be true at once so what, what i'm essentially coming to the conclusion of saying is that let me bring this thesis all together. So stick with me, stick with me. <laughs> let, me let me come I mean, let me I'm all ears. bring it all together. So the what I'm saying is that the measure of sustainability that is being purported by whether it's uh, corporations or governments or whatever, it's a dumb metric. We should just get rid of it, stop using it, stop saying it because it doesn't mean anything. It's essentially a, a dumb word. It means nothing. It, it literally means nothing in my opinion number two is that we do so, so that so that the, the sooner and and the reason that i say that is that the sooner that we can do that and stop focusing on this uh, unattainable unachievable goal of sustainability then we can more so focus on the human innovation so i would argue that we need to uh, understand that sustainability is not a, a an, an ends to be reached because it is a a a, a ponytail it's a fairy tale and, and rather we need to in embrace innovation and in that it will, in fact, help us get out with a more realistic, it's like a more sober approach that, okay, we need to use these resources, but we know it's not sustainable because nothing is sustainable. So let's stop fucking talking about sustainable. Let's use this shit while we need it. But while at the same time, keep in mind that we need to keep innovating. We can't stop innovating and stop relying on human innovation. No, like that's just simply... We we just need need that, and it's and it's come through in the past. So we sh- we can't expect reliably. I think that human innovation will continue to improve and get better. So that's kind of like the ultimate conclusion, or one of the conclusions that I wanna put out on this podcast.
1: Yeah, interesting. I don't think I agree with that. Okay. <laughs> now, I, it's interesting because. It's it's apparent to me that the the way we are currently uh, doing things in Western societies is uh, not considering uh, the full length of um, uh, the full magnitude of our actions. Okay, I think that I am the type of person that would say we can do better and should do better for uh, agricultural, um, you know, practices. So we're not depleting soils; we're sustaining soil, so you can use land over and over again.
0: So th- that's actually what my second point was that I put a pin on. So actually, you want to go? You, can I get into up? my second point? Go. Okay so this actually that that's a great point which actually brings me to my other point that i had put a pin on before and and that is with with respect to the only thing that we can have sustainability to attach to (laughs) sorry i know i know i said that like before like the sustainability is dumb and we shouldn't approach it but i sorry i should have put an asterisk to it the only thing that we can approach from a sustainable point of view is The waste that is generated from our resource depletion and how we uh, dispose of it, and making sure that our disposal is done in a sustainable manner—that that's to me where the only place where sustainability plays a role.
1: Okay, so it's in the extraction of the resource. We're not thinking about sustainability. Exactly, we extract the resource. Yes, to meet the need. Exactly, we're not going to slow it down for sustainable really we're going to extract it we're going to meet the need we then use it and then after it's been used when we're we're looking at disposal we're looking at the waste products created during its manufacturing we focus our sustainability on those uh what are they called resource lines i don't like from from (laughs) the from the
0: waste management side right those streams exactly from from the stream of how do we actually manage the waste and like like because when we manage the waste for example when you're dealing with wastewater and you're cleaning it up to a certain level that is uh, acceptable to be then put out into the rivers and the lakes and you know, if you make sure that it's you're treating it to a certain quality, that way you, when you're putting it out into the, the, um, the lakes, the, the ambient concentrations of certain pollutants are within, theoretically, hopefully, although the studies are still out, that it's within acceptable limits of whether it's certain metals, certain nutrients, certain, um, you know, uh, biological material. So we we are sustainable, but only in we can attain sustainability, but only in the practice of how we dispose and of the waste that's generated from from the mines. So that was the that the caveat is that sustainability is dumb, but you. You, when it comes to resource extraction, but when it comes to actually disposal of the whatever you extracted, that's truly the only place where sustainability should enter the conversation and it actually makes sense to discuss in conversation. Because when you're, because again, you wanna you wanna deplete and your waste in a way that's just, that's sustainable. You don't wanna just throw all your wastewater unmanaged, unclean into your your lakes and rivers because. Sooner than you know it, like it's your water's going to be crap, and you don't, you're not because those same lakes and rivers are where people downstream draw their water from, so they drink it. So now you're you're you know damaging public health, you're damaging ecological health, so on and so forth, and it's just unsustainable. So when it comes to the environment sustainability, that's where we're really coming to the picture.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. So it's. It's fair to say that in this model you're proposing, that uh, for mines specifically, extraction, thinking about throttling extraction for sustainable reasons, you'd be against that. When you're actually extracting um, the materials, when you say you're not worried about sustainability, this doesn't mean that you don't think it's a good idea to have best practices Mm used. No, we've talked about this before on the podcast about there are good ways to mine and bad ways to mine. Limiting the um, adverse uh, uh, you know, impacts to the environment um, that come from mining mm-hmm. is good. You don't want to just go willy-nilly. However, here's my question to you. We've been talking about mines. What about something like forestry? If we were not thinking about sustainability for our wood, for lumber production, you could see us cutting down the entire rainforest without planting another tree. In that instance, would you not say there needs to be sustainability thought about for a resource like wood that is biological and has a gross gross cycle? And it's one thing to talk about a mineral that is generated over geolo- huge geological time frames, but it's another thing to talk about something like a, f- a, t- a tree that mm-hmm. maybe may has spent uh, two hundred years growing or mm-hmm. what have.
0: Yeah, you. I would say yeah, th- 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 that's definitely true, and probably uh, yeah. There's another asterisk on my on my theory is that it would pro- it would be more so for unrenewable resources versus renewable resources. So I I could definitely say that yeah we'll make a carving out for renewable resources like wood and forestry where it grows back naturally in due time if it's done in such ways so that way your output uh, um, equals your input and then your net stays on balance so yeah you could you could make the case for that yeah but i guess my, my case is just more so for other non-renewable resources essentially and how when we we hear the term of, of, of business sustainability uh, whatever sustainability—it none of it really, I guess, makes sense unless it's, I guess, a renewable resource, or we're dealing about the environmental, um, emissions and and how they're being dealt with, and whether that's being done in a sustainable way. Um, yeah, same. yeah, and well, nice. this is
1: what I feel sustainability has become when we talk about it being. The word sustainability being used in the corporate uh, landscape. What I see is corporations get pressure from activists, environmental activists, uh, a conscience, you know, society's conscious to do better. And they say you're you're so unsustainable. You're doing all these terrible things. So they say, okay, we need to make sure we bring this word into our in, you know, into our institutions, into right. our corporations, and we need to say that we're having conversations about them. Mm-hmm. We need to discuss how we're doing it. But what, as far as I can tell, th- there is perhaps um, the the ongoing discussion of it, the 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 writing down about how it's sustainable, but, but nobody is connecting all the dots. It's it's not. There's no. Um, You know, there's no uh, organization that's then gathering all the thoughts of, oh, how is this company X and company Y going to be more sustainable? These are what they've written down about what they're going to do. Okay, is there any conflicts here? No. Okay, go ahead. There's nobody doing that. So going back to just your idea that it is a useless kind of um, term. Term. I get that feeling a hundred percent when it comes to, to to the way it's used in corporations. Often,
0: mm-hmm. um, it's just being thrown in like a buzzword. You know, it's just kind of being thrown in a, as a catch, like you know, oh look, we're sustainable. We're, we're we're considering sustainability. We're talking about sustainability. We're going to adopt sustainable practices. Okay, what does that mean? We're going to adopt sustainable practices. Like, it's, again, it's just really being used in a dishonest and disingenuous way. That's my feeling about this whole term of sustainability. And um, because, again, if you look at the actual definition of sustainability, the definition makes no sense. Meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs so I'm purely critiquing the definition as set in the Bruntland Commission Report 1987, which seems to be largely adopted by other um, institutions as well. Uh, because when I look at for example what is environmental sustainability according to the United Nations uh, World Commission on environment um, and development environmental sustainability is about acting in a way that ensures future generations have the natural resources available to live an equal if not better way of life as current generations so this is uh, so the UN has an even worse definition uh, <laughs> because when they talk about environmental sustainability, they don't even talk about the important part, which is what I talked about is the important part when it comes to sustainability for the environment, which is how you dispose of the resource, because that is the only element of the life cycle where you can truly discuss sustainability in the sustainable um disposal of that good so that it doesn't jeopardize the ability of future generations to use, um, I don't know, whatever that area is, that common area is that's being uh, that the waste is being disposed into. So in their definition, it's of environmental sustainability they say that it's acting in a way that ensures future generations have the natural resources available so we could make the case natural resources for forestry okay sure because again it's a renewable resource it's a natural renewable resource so we can do it in a way inflow equals outflow the balance stays on the books we we have that um but it says available to live in an equal if not better way of life as current generations so aside from the the resource of wood lumber everything else even when we look at energy like for example like nuclear right it's one of the options for sustainable or net zero um energy but even net nuclear, zero uh,
1: emissions
0: And net zero emissions in terms of carbon emissions um, but uh, nuclear you know comes from uranium and then the refinement that goes into that so uranium it's it's not a renewable resource okay next option um we have uh, solar right so but then that comes from panels solar panels which we need to mine um you know some specific metals carbon put it all together um and okay there you go and e- energy as well it, it it's it's unsustainable um windmills okay w- windmills what they're made out of steel steel largely made out of carbon uh, and uh, with mixture of other metals all that is mined um so again unsustainable like it's what wh- what other example steel yeah steel we just we just discussed concrete um so again I, I bring all this up just to say that you really can't have the discussion of sustainable or environmental sustainability without discussing the waste and how that's managed. I think that's kind of like my central thesis for this whole thing. If you guys can take one thing away from this, that's what I'm going to say, anyways. Um, about environmental sustainability. And there, there's actually some alternate definition. Um, we can read it just real quick. It says, environmental sustainability is the capacity to improve the Earth, improve the quality of human life while living within the carrying capacity of the Earth's supporting ecosystems. Yeah, so another bullshit <gasps> definition. <laughs> well, I, I, uh,
1: the problem also with that definition is believing that we can accurately calculate the carrying capacity of our planet. Yeah. You know, cause there are estimates out there, what our carrying capacity is, and you will hear it being used to say, you know, this country on average, or the, the a person in this country is living a lifestyle that would take seven earth. You've heard these type of calculations done right. right, before. Right. But My concern is that the carrying capacity of our Earth is uh, uh, the the estimates that have been made aren't very good.
0: And it's constantly changing because every day we're updating what that carrying capacity is. So it just needs to be literally iterated on a daily basis because we're constantly making innovations that are changing what that carrying capacity is.
1: Yes, yes. So in terms of this topic sustainability, you know if I said what would be something uh, that would help uh, future generations uh, uh, future generations with um, with their needs, what, you know, what, what, what could we adapt? What kind of techniques, processes, um, ways of doing things could we adapt that um, made it such that future generations are in a better spot in terms of having their needs met? That, that, that we aren't um, having enjoyments off the backs of the thuff, suffering of, of our kids and our kids' kids one area which we've already discussed is this idea of improving on what we're doing with waste streams. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's a logical one. Yeah. You know, and another area, which I don't feel gets enough attention is this uh, idea of repairing things, trying to make things last longer. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is so old fashioned in some sense, but, the idea that you would repair something has gone by the wayside. It's now something meets to the end of its life. You know, great if you if you're sending that appliance, let's say a fridge or something, to um, to a facility that that strips it down and recycles. That's great. But another thing that would save a lot of energy because uh, it takes energy to recycle and to build something up from new again. Is if we had the ability for um, the economic incentive for people, uh, you know, a fridge repairman to come back and make that fridge last another ten years, that's completely just disappeared. Yeah, Um,
0: it's cheaper to just get something brand new instead of pay for a repair. Essentially, that's kind of the math calculus that people are doing in their heads. So, so so why is
1: it? It's this is kind of a. Rhetorical question, but it's it. I'm going to say, why is it that we've reached this point economically where, the in an attempt to be economically sustainable, we've put ourselves in a position where uh, it's not uh, economical to repair things, and we're also finding ourselves with Record inflation. I'm, I'm not saying we have we need to answer this question, but <laughs> it is the criticism you also often hear is that in attempting to the it's like there me there I am using the word it's like. <laughs> cutting out these bad word habits but we'll <laughs> no see worry. how that no goes worries. Don't worry.
0: um i've used it many times in this podcast <laughs> oh, good. we're def- trying to make better improvements trying to improve the quality of the podcast folks stick with us we're trying to use less likes and ums and bums and its and clicks and that we're improving ourselves and hopefully you're improving yourself in 2022 as well my friend here, Sorry, here, back here, to the podcast.
1: Here, here. <laughs> so, like, um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we are we we're basically the criticism that is being made often is that our financial institutions and the the desire for profits undermines sustainability, environmental sustainability, material sustainability, and I think it's a fair one, but. My question is, is there any way where we could bring back in a a system, a capitalist system that values uh, sustainability more? And one suggestion we've kind of um, discussed on this podcast is that of uh, Bill Nordhaus. Bill Nordhaus had the radical idea—I'll call it a radical idea—of saying we should tax externalities. We should tax bads instead of goods. And oh, that's cute, goods. But it, what's interesting about taxing bads is it completely flips things on its head. When you put when you put a price tags on pollution, instead of uh, you know income tax or the tax on a new product that you're selling you are you are creating a market force that tries to reduce those bads. So although I don't know if this is all perhaps theoretical and 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 not practical to implement, I would say that this concept of taxing bads, is not good is one I think people should ponder a bit and go is is? Is there perhaps, you know, a subtle shift that could be made over twenty years where we we re we establish our taxes on different bads instead of different goods? Ultimately, not raising taxes, which is one of the things one of the things. Will uh, Bill Nordhaus also says net the the amount of taxes going to your government maintains the same. You're just allocating where those taxes are being. Um, what those what those taxes are being uh, levied on?
0: So, I go back to my fundamental premise that chasing sustainability is a dumb idea. So <laughs> when when you like when you talk about having um, governments incentivize sustainability, I go back to that means nothing, except for unless you're saying you are incentivizing sustainability in, in terms of their environmental emissions, which almost never gets talked about. So unless, it's envi- so unless it's their government is incentivizing sustainability with respect to how emissions and waste are being managed, then I don't think that government can mandate or create an economic incentive for sustainability because that word doesn't mean anything. Is that, is that? I hear that, you. I hear <laughs> you. I, I, I right wasn't right.
1: convinced when you first brought this idea up, but now that you've elaborated on 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 it more and kind of established uh, where there are exceptions or asterisks, as you've called them.
0: Yeah. I, out, I, could, I
1: definitely see your point.
0: Um And this is something that I hadn't really thought of, honestly, until I really... Um, gave this episode some thought and we were uh, preparing and planning for this episode. And I was really, cause I'd, I'd always like thought about, okay, it well, sustainability. Okay. What is it? And you know, we, we talk about, it, we think about it, but then in preparation for this episode, like I really, really thought in depth about it. And I had this kind of eureka moment. I remember I texted you about it too. I was like, yeah, I think I had an insight about what is sustainability. And yeah. Yeah. So th- this was kind of it in terms of, what I believe sustainability is and how it's kind of being misused. And it's uh, really, to me, anytime you hear sustainability now, you should be kind of um your ear should perk up and be also also your 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 skeptical scientist sunglasses or eyeglasses should be on i don't know i said monocle monocle should be on and you should be (laughs) yeah very uh weary of what the person is saying if it doesn't pertain to environmental sustainability and if that environmental sustainability doesn't pertain to the waste and how the waste is being disposed managed and uh, all that stuff um because again sustainability just really um it's just kind of like a word to hide behind and or same with green technology like what the hell is green technology (laughs) you know what i mean like these these terms and maybe we can do another episode that where we go in on green technology and maybe some of the issues with that um but um Maybe okay. It's maybe it's a good time to shift gears and talk about the second element that we want to discuss, which was the idea of tragedy of the commons and how that ties into sustain the conversation of sustainability and all that stuff.
1: Okay, perfect. Yeah, uh, tragedy of the commons is an essay uh, that was written by Garrett Hardin. Um, it was written, I think, fifty fifty four years ago. Uh, and it is a paper talking about the population problem. It is widely cited. It is something that was brought to our attention in our uh, first year of uh, university in environmental engineering. And uh, we want to bring it up because... Population growth is often part of the conversation around sustainability and the viewpoints that Hardin have uh, or had had uh, have bled through uh, into a lot of uh, environmental thinking about um, sustainability. And it is fascinating to read what he wrote uh uh for me 10 years after hearing it for the first time but also to read it now in the context of um of the fact that 50 years has has passed since uh he, he put pen to paper here you know he was writing this shortly after world war II, and um technology was very different at that time so what i think I'd like to do uh, on this podcast is just extract a few of his thoughts for discussion so I'm gonna start here with uh, the beginning of his essay so the tragedy of the Commons the population problem has no technical solution it requires a fundamental extension in morality so Hardin writes it is fair to say that most people who anguish over the population problem are trying to find a way to avoid the evils of overpopulation without relinquishing any of the privileges they now enjoy. They think that farming the seas or developing new strains of wheat will solve the problem Te- technologically. I try to show here that, that, that the solution they seek cannot be found. The population problem cannot be solved in a technical way, any more than the problem of winning. The game of tic-tac-toe. He continues, population, as Malthus said, naturally tends to grow geometrically, or as we now say, exponentially. In a finite world, that means that the per capita share of the world's goods must steadily decrease. Is our ours a finite world? I want to. Point out right here that he is ta- talking about Thomas Malthus, and we've talked about him previously on uh, our podcast
0: episode fourteen, I believe, on um, the uh, Rational Optimists. Right, Rational Optimists, check it out on our website, freshprinciplespodcast.com or wherever you're listening to your podcast. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Well, on that podcast, we discussed the idea of Malthusian catastrophe, and this term is used to describe when an unchecked population basically outstrips the resources it needs for survival and Malthus in the 1700s uh, early 1800s was saying this was going to happen Uh, he was using as a justification for not helping uh, poor countries Um, and (laughs) how convenient right (laughs) And the, Malthus- the moral
0: thing is to let them die.
1: <laughs> 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 the twisted justification, oh, you know, nice. and he is, uh, the Malthusian catastrophe, uh, as he saw it has never come to be. And in that episode, we discussed that current population growth is showing, um, signs of, of slowing down in different parts of the world. And, There is the current idea, you know, it is still just an estimate, but the UN thinks that we're going to peak out at 11 billion, where there's currently 7.87 billion people on the
0: planet. Yeah, so it's not that it's showing signs of slowing down. It has slowed down. So his fundamental premise was wrong. Right. But there's another thing I would like to bring up
1: about what was just written here by Hardin. He says that, In a finite world, this means that the per capita share of the world's goods must steadily decrease. So, there are goods that are finite. The argument could be made that gasoline is finite because of the fact that when you burn gasoline, it is destroyed. But there are other goods that are definitely not finite Um, poetry, a book people can reread these things, the way you um, sustainably uh, grow food over and over again, these things aren't finite. Maybe it becomes trickier to produce them at the rate needed with a higher um, population, a higher demand, but they're not finite. So I just wanted to point out that it's easy to generalize, think that we you know because people say we live on a finite planet, assuming that we're not mining things in space or space is is a place that we can escape to. They talk about the world being finite and it is, but it isn't. You see what I'm trying to say?
0: Yeah, yeah. I th- I think it's kind of like some things are finite but other things are not finite. So I think it's important to make that distinction. And for example, you'll hear this uh, criticism a lot when it comes to, for example, free markets and um, capitalism and uh, continuous growth and how it's just a silly idea that you're gonna have uh, infinite growth in. Um, but uh, but in reality, that that is what has been happening. The uh, GDP, I think, ever since we've been measuring it for the last like two hundred years, has gone up by like some sixteen thousand percent or or something like that ever since like. The the U.S. and free markets have truly been adopted um, on a more global scale. So, yeah, um, if you were to assume a zero-sum mentality where the pie is set at a fixed value then you would say okay there's only so much of the pie that can go around but if we were to assume that that pie can actually grow which is what has been done via our economic system that pie has been growing so it has been able to provide for more people and um so it goes into this idea that okay yes there is some truth in what he's saying that yes, we do live in a world with finite resources, but the conclusions that he draws from it are um, too extreme because he makes it Make assumptions Purely, purely yeah. about the finite nature of resources But as we come to realize That that pie does grow It is not a fixed pie There is more for people to um, to to gain There is more wealth to go around And it's not just a zero sum If we win that means you're losing Or if you win that means we're losing No we can both win together And I think that's a much better way To approach these types of uh, systems and conditions So that way you're not left in a way To justify not giving aid to the poor because hey if we give aid to the poor countries then they're just going to keep growing and we're going to have this geometric growth and we're going to have less resources and uh, screw that like i, I want to make sure i'm good screw them so it's a very um dark way to perceive the world it is uh it, it what's also interesting this is just an
1: aside the term geometrically um, i didn't realize that was being used as a synonym for exponentially
0: Mm -hmm.
1: that's uh i've always heard exponentially geometrically was a bit of a new one for me yeah um interesting to know that so he goes on um to say hardin goes on to say in his essay uh he, he well he asked the question um you know Uh, So sorry, sorry, but
0: before you get into that, sorry, I just want to establish, so we've already said like two things have been false, that he said that there's going to be geometric growth in population, and that hasn't been true, and that we're living in a world of finite resources, which is partially true. It's partially true,
1: correct. So then he says, the goal of the greatest good for the greatest number, can this be realized? And he says, no, for two reasons. And he thinks that each reason in itself is sufficient. The first reason is, it is not mathematically possible to maximize two or more variables at the same time. Reason one. second reason. The second reason springs directly from a biological fact. To live, any organism must have a source of energy. For example, food. This energy is utilized for two purposes. Mere maintenance and work. For man, maintenance of life requires 1,600 kilocalories a day, maintenance calories. Anything that he does over and above merely staying alive will be defined as work and and is supported by work calories, which it takes in. Work calories are used not only for what we call work in common speech, they are also required for all forms of enjoyment, from swimming, automobile racing, playing music and writing poetry if our goal is to maximize population it is obvious that we must what we must do we must make the work calories per person as close to zero as possible no gourmet meals no vacation no sports no music no literature no art okay Jeez. so w- why do these uh, why do these fall apart so the first one is it's not mass- mathematically possible to optimize two variables at the same time.
0: I'm sorry, repeat what those two variables were that he's trying to optimize. You know,
1: just saying, in general, it th- because, that, well, he's trying, let me go back to the, f- the initial premises the greatest good for the greatest number. So the idea is he, he's saying, if we're trying to get the greatest good for the greatest number, that is unachievable by the mere fact that it's mathematically impossible to maximize two or more variables okay but uh, my point would be is if you had just a population of one person one person has there's no other person so one person has all the resources in the world you've great have you really maximized the greatest goods for that person i mean that's a very lonely person that person's not going to be not going to be able to use all those resources so it's like two is two people you know enough does 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 goods good some form of goods comes from the fact that there are other human beings and that you're not just one sole person with all the material resources goods come from other human beings so that premise seems weird and then on top of that it's assuming that every uh under this model the greatest goods is almost like every every person Needs to be living the life of a king. There are some people that would love to live the life of a king, but I I would argue that uh, not everybody really wants to live the life of a king. So the the premise that you have to max the the mere fact that you can't maximize um, uh, multiple uh, uh, two or more variables um, at the same time, yeah, that may be true mathematically, but um, for this problem of goods per person maximizing is not something we need to even achieve. Part two is the idea about energy and having your work, your um, base low uh, energy needs made by a certain amount of calories, call your maintenance calories, and anything above that you do. Well, he completely didn't see the change in agriculture, the 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 advent of we really do have enough food now to feed a lot of people. And, you know, he originally said this had no technical problem. People think they can, you know, develop new strains of wheat. Well, we have done things that have drastically made it possible for us to meet the calorie needs of, of billions of people. So, um, the, this grim reality where we're, we've got so many people and there's literally, uh, people are starving those have happened in smaller um to smaller degrees in in certain countries in certain places uh when when f- food resources are very low um probably still happening in large amounts in North Korea like you know but extreme <laughs> <Same> e- example <laughs> yeah but so it's it, these these things can happen but in the last 50 years this crunch of calories to people has n- not occurred
0: so- yeah i think uh it, it really highlights honestly like how much of a like for lack of a better term an idiot this guy was not even an idiot but did like almost pure like evil like this guy just sounds like he was pure evil and he was trying to rationalize his evil conclusions so that way he could sleep well at night thinking that he was morally on the high ground for wanting to maintain uh, poor countries in their poor nature and he can actually scoff at people for trying to help uh, third world countries to to develop because he'll rationalize it as being a futile waste of energy but... Like the, and, then, and then the fact that this guy's work is so widely distributed and going in first year university where you're so raw, like you have like barely any of the tools to truly assess the world. And then you're being thrown with this type of like ideological dogma. And it's just so, I don't know. I just it, reading more into it. It just feels really wrong that we're teaching people this kind of crap like at a young age because like even his his uh, argument of like you can't uh maximize two variables or you can optimize for the maximizing of two variables or something uh, what was it exactly you want to read that to me again yeah and he's basing it off of,
1: of a paper a mathematician's paper the the uh it is not mathematically possible to maximize for two or more variables at the same
0: time so again so this is something where i would say maximization isn't the same as optimization as well so right if you're trying to optimize for variables that's not the same thing as maximizing for right variables. you
1: can optimize for it multiple yeah. you can multi- optimize for the best of multiple uh exactly. s- variables
0: but exactly so that's that's one uh quick rebuttal to that and then number two would be that if he's saying if he's saying that okay um what was that second point when when it comes to it's calories basically uh, you have you have maintenance calories and
1: work calories and work calories is everything from like going for a walk to uh writing poetry basically saying anything that makes life more enjoyable than just mere existence
0: right so the whole point on calories is basically again one that is based off of that zero-sum mentality where if we want to distribute all the calories that we have to the maximum number of people, then we have to let that number drop to zero. But again, that's under the model, under the assumption of a of that pie being a fixed size. And what we found since the time that his work has been written, which was uh, what more than 50, 60 years ago now, is that that pie is growing, that more people are able to take part in the economic models of free markets and they are able able to uh, attain more wealth while others do so simultaneously and it's an effect of lifting more and more people out of poverty so it just um again shows that that those fun this is like why our honestly like though this is why i believe like we started this podcast was to look at these issues from first principles and understand how like from the fundamental assumptions that you're making, because all all the arguments that you that that we make come from underlying principles and underlying presuppositions or underlying values upon which the the next layer of uh, information and, and knowledge is is based upon, and then the next layer, and, and then there's layers and layers, and. That's why uh, I believe, like having these conversations, and hopefully you guys find value in these conversations as being important, is that we're going down to those fundamental. First principles, those layers below the surface, and analyzing how something that is so widely distributed, something that is being taught from universities, from engineering students to art students and various types of graduates, and how fundamentally flawed it is because of its fundamental assumption of the zero sum, the zero sum, uh, pie that is this one fixed size. But we know that that pie has been growing. We know just from the data of the history, but. Yet we're still teaching the same old crap. That just pisses me off.
1: Yeah, what I wanted to say uh, is, I don't think Harden is evil. I think he was a conf- very confused. Uh, I think he he didn't he, he he was being presented a set of principles. Uh, scientific ideas mathematical ideas and he was coming up with a very cynical conclusion and he was confused um, and I but you're assuming intent I am assuming intent Be, but what because what I want to say is I I mean you're assuming intent when you call him evil too but what I would say is 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 true regardless of the intent of Hardin is It is messed up that this is uh, so widely taught. And here's why. Education should be about teaching people how to think. But what it often does is teaches people what to think. And when you're young and impressionable, you often develop ideas that come from what's being presented to you, what you've been educated about. There aren't your ideas, and this is such a cynical thing to put forward as as uh, uh, some something to discuss in your first year of university. Uh, it is therefore so important that we now go back and say why is it that we think this way about this topic or come to this conclusion which we're trying to do on this podcast. But I feel like you want to say
0: something about that. So I would say that the reason that I do call him evil is because I would say, maybe I'm wrong here, but I would say that I'm not purely interpreting his intent, but rather I'm interpreting his actual conclusion. And his actual conclusion is one that i believe is an evil conclusion right it is evil to believe that if poor countries get rich there's going to be less for us so we need to keep them in the gutter like i don't know to me that that seems like pretty if you think of that, that yeah, yeah like it's it, it, it's it, it's the issue with ra- with purely rational thought and not to get down, down into this line of thinking, or this um, topic, because this could be a whole other conversation of its own, but how purely rational thinking can lead to very evil conclusions, and how, if you were to base your actions purely on what is the rational thing to do, somebody, if we we're to trust the experts, as we have done so in the last little while, and an expert such as our friend Albert here, is that his name, Albert? uh garrett hardin garrett hardin my bad garrett hardin would say he would say that you know what the rational thing is to cut off all the aid to other countries um we need to st- st- stop all that uh, no support um we need to hog all the resources and because there's only so much that can go around so it's it's a yeah it's a very Mm, I don't know. It just d- doesn't sit well with me. Whereas, if we say that okay, he, he was he was misplaced. He he had bad information. He what what did you say? He he was a confused he, man. <laughs> 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 he was a confused man. <laughs> maybe maybe he was confused, but maybe not. Or maybe well, he sound like he sounded like he was pretty smart. You know what? He, and he put together these freaking mathematical things all into like this nice paper <laughs> that he. Is now well known for. Well, uh, yeah, and I would like to that. say that he
1: um, he doesn't talk about uh, monopolizing or hogging resources. He talks about the need that common areas need high, either high government um, regulation or or the, we need to privatize common areas. Those yeah. are kind of like his
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. right. <Sorry. laughs> No, monopolizing, just privatizing, so nobody else can use. Right? Okay. Okay. Okay, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Uh,
1: And I well, but going back to the rationality being void of morality, it is interesting that that is uh, a conclusion that we're, we're drawing from this because in the title of the tragedy of the commons, it begins with the population problem has no technical solution; it requires a fundamental extension in morality where I feel like morality kind of is vo- starts is becomes limited in some of the st- in some of the ultimate conclusions um that Harden makes
0: it's it's a morality it it's a it's a really ugly way of the use of morality it's an extension of morality towards doing things that I believe to be true and you're moral if you do the things that I believe to be true that's morality in this guy's books pretty much
1: right right okay i want one last thing i want to say about this paper, which is uh, uh, much longer, goes into uh, a number of different topics that we're not going to get into uh, today. But I want to summarize his co- problem with uh, the Commons and why he why there's this title, the Tragedy of the Commons. And this is what he writes. The tragedy of the commons develops in this way. Picture a pasture open to all. It is to be expected that each herdsman will try to keep as many cattle as possible on the commons. Such an arrangement may work reasonably well, satisfactorily, for centuries, because tribal wars, poaching, and disease keep the number of both men and beasts well below the carrying capacity of the land. Finally, however, comes the day of reckoning, that is, the day when the long-desired goal of social st- stability becomes a reality. At this point, the inherent log—the the inherent logic of the commons remorsely generates tragedy. As a rational being, each herdsman seeks to maximize his gain. Explicitly or implicitly, more or less consciously, he asks, What is the utility to me of adding one more animal to my herd? This utility has one negative and one positive component. The one positive component is a function of the increment of one animal. Since the herdman receives all the proceeds from the sale of the additional animal, the positive utility is merely a plus one to him. The negative component is a function of the additional overgrazing created by one more animal. Since, however, the effects of overgrazings, overgrazing are shared by the herdsmen, by all the herdsmen, I should say, the negative utility for a particular decision-making uh, decision herdsmen is only a fraction of negative one. Adding together the components... Partial utility. The rational herdsman concludes that only the only sensible course to him is to pursue. Uh, for him to pursue is to add another animal to his herd, and another, and another. But this is the but this is the conclusion reached by each and every rational herdsman sharing a commons. Therein is the tragedy. Each man is locked into a system that compels him to increase his herd without limits in a world that is limited. Ruin is the destination towards which all men rush, each pursuing his own best interest in a society that believes in the freedom of the commons. Freedom in a commons brings ruin to all. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about what a rational herdsman is doing. He keeps talking about as a rational being. The, the rational herdsman just wants to uh, put more cattle on for himself.
0: Maximize profit.
1: Maximize profit. But it's not rational. It's, it may be rational for uh, a herdsman that is oblivious to the concepts of overgrazing. But as soon as the herdsman knows of the concepts of overgrazing, I no longer think that rational herdsman is is simply – doing the math in the way that he outlines here. You know, I feel like it's this idea that the rational man is intoxicated by this obsession with you know obtaining Green. more more stuff, more money is is a cynical view of 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 a rational herdsman. I, I really yeah. don't I I really think what is is flawed with that whole scenario is is this idea that uh the only thing that makes sense is is to continue to add things uh, add add animals to this plot in light of the fact that this herdman knows at some point he's going to reach the carrying capacity of that lot
0: yeah because if you're a rational herdsman then you know like you said that there, there's limits to how much you can graze over a certain land, right? There, You have to kind of let the the land, um, you either have to like replenish it with nutrients, with fertilizer, or you move to another part of uh, the field that hasn't been used and let the previous field uh, replenish itself over time. So it, honestly, it, reading that to me, it just makes me even more realize that this guy was just like, for lack of a better term, almost like a hyper socialist communist or something, because like that's the o- as the only thing I can really conclude. Because like oh, the, the rational um, herdsman goes for pure profit, so he is really again. From first principles, I believe this character is one that looks at things purely from a a material gains worldview. That we're all after material gains and we're all after becoming rich, and because of the we're greedy rich capitalists and we're all after material possessions. So, of course, the rational uh, herdsman, what he's going to do is go for another piece of cattle because then that's more wealth for him. And in his uh, calculation, that it's a plus one and a minus fraction of, of of one or whatever. Yeah. So but it's it's such a simplistic model to analyze the world view and and just like any individual herdsman might have a plethora of variables that they're looking at and not just the pure profit but maybe also balancing profit with also a downtime and making sure that they have enough time to spend on other things as well and also taking care of their animals so that they're they're being tended to in a way because some herdsmen are passionate compassionate towards their animals they're not just purely looking for profit and they want to make sure that their their animals are being taken care of and um, being able to graze the land in a healthy manner and they're not just being uh, stuck into tiny cages for the duration of their of their lives and so i don't know it's just to to say that uh, to to simplify a rational herdsman as, as just one that seeks profit is just uh, as opposed to one that maybe cares about his community, one that cares about uh, creating a quality product. You, you know, you could say a rational herdsman cares about making sure that he's got a quality product so that his brand name is attached to a quality product. So, uh, yeah, the rational herdsman is one that uh, maybe cares about a quality product so he has a good brand and a good name. So just for him to simplify, a rational herdsman is one that maximizes their gains and their profit. It's just such a. It's just like a typical criticism of these fucking leftist, communist, socialists, and it's another example of how that shit is permeating into um, the 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 academia and the from the academics and their highfalutin tootin, freaking, a- passing. A- uh, air out their ass type of rationalization, pontification. They come up with these types of, like again, I go back to evil c- conclusions uh, to to rationalize their um, communal communist freaking dogmas.
1: Right, and I I just read that final line that that he writes at the end of the paragraph: freedom in a commons brings ruin to all and i just hear a sentence that could be pulled from you know the communist manifesto like yeah. this this you know Legit. um is
0: uh yeah, yeah. i really curious what this guy's political leanings were
1: you know he he lived in texas
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know which i just find ironic because of the freedom loving nature of most most Texans are maybe stereotyped as but yeah. that is well that is a data point
0: but, what but this I- was during a time where communism was being hotly debated in the US right because the union was still active uh, and and a poor uh, and a strong force throughout the world so um communist thoughts were being debated in the US and like this is maybe around the time even more like mccarthyism was happening right if i'm not mistaken i don't know i could be off on the timeline there but um it is to say that there was a lot of debates from the intelligentsia of that area with regards to the merits of uh, of communism. And it was widely being discussed among leftist circles um, as it is uh, well, today.
1: You actually are right on with the timeline because uh, the end date of McCarthyism was 1954 and this was written in 1968. So it's kind of coming off of that, uh, definitely within... Mm-hmm. It definitely
0: would have been in his lifetime that he would have experienced these right. ideas. And, right. Mm-hmm.
1: Now I want to bring up uh, a counterpoint to the tragedy of the commons that I came across. And this was an essay uh, written by Michelle Nyehouse and it's uh, entitled the miracle of the commons. And uh, she writes far from bre- being profoundly destructive, We humans have a deep capacity for sharing resources with generosity and foresight. And in her essay, Michelle um, introduces uh, uh, the reader to uh, a scientist named Eleanor Onstrom. And Eleanor was uh, uh, around uh, and publishing before Hardin's Tragedy of the Commons came out. And she was looking at uh, collaborative management systems, um, and she was studying how um, cattle herders in Switzerland, forest dwellers in Japan, and irrigators in the Philippines—how all these communities found ways uh, of both preserving and sharing resources, pastures, trees, water, and providing their members their members with a living. Some had been uh, some had been defiantly avoiding the tragedy of the commons for centuries. Onstrom was, was simply one of the first scientists to pay, play, pay close attention to their traditions and analyzing uh, how and why they worked. So there, you know, is a scientist going out there finding real words examples where communities, groups of humans have gotten together and um, successfully managed uh, resources that you know without being taught how to do it without being dumb herdsmen that just think mm-hmm. add another cattle these, yeah. these are traditions that are being ha- ha- you know so obvious to think about it that that we're, you all these different cultures are going to develop ways to manage management land and uh what i just wanted to say about for, uh about this article is she came up with uh, a set of features that um if these features exist, then you will have a, a successful system and I'll, I'll read them out to you. So, um, the first feature is clear boundaries. the com- The community doing the managing must be well-defined. Fe- feature two, reliable monitoring of the shared resources. Feature three, a reasonable balance of costs and benefits for participants. Feature four, a predictable process for the fast and fair resolution of conflict. Feature five. An escalating series of punishment for cheaters, series six. Good relationships between the community and other layers of authority. And the final feature. Well, actually, sorry, that is the final feature. Good relationships between the community and other layers of authority from house household heads to international institutions. So if these, uh, seven, I think seven features exist, they, uh, are often, um, conducive of well-managed areas that are, that are avoiding the quote unquote tragedy of the commons. And some of them right off the bat is like pretty obvious. Like when you, something like saying, okay, do you know where your clear band, clear boundaries, um, of the area that you're managing? Well, yeah, that you know, if if people don't know where their responsibilities uh, end and begin, then there's it's much easier things. It's much easier for things to fall through the cracks. Like if your your job was to plow a certain number of roads, but there was like you kind of this you know few roads and nobody was told who was supposed to plow them. Yeah, those are gonna get so clear Mm -hmm. clear boundaries. People just come to that. Um, Yeah, you know, reliable monitoring of shared resource. I mean, I think that is fundamental to any, uh, any type of conservation effort, you know, the, the, the idea of conservation is if you can understand what is going on in the boundaries of the resource you're trying to, uh, you're trying to, um, conserve, uh, accurately, like if, if we're talking about animal conservation, knowing how many heads of deer you have in there versus coyotes versus this, you can establish your hunting, route. you know, uh, Practices and and such that that you have a, a, a you know, continued sustaining population of a certain size that you deem necessary for that area. So, more more reliable your monitoring system is, better better the outcome is. Uh, a reasonable balance of costs and benefits for participants. Um, this is the idea of like if if you're going to have shared resources, uh, people need to know what's the benefit and cost for playing by the rules. If you don't understand what you're getting out of it, you're more likely to want to cheat it. If you, you know. Um, but then they go on to say, if there are cheaters, those cheaters need to be punished. I, I feel like humans tend to figure that out too. It's like the, the best way to prevent somebody from breaking, you know, the social rule and, you know, eating all the the grain stores for the winter is to probably cast that person out, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever it may be. Right. Uh, you know, um, but the point of what uh, all this is, this concept of uh, sharing resources with uh, that are with a, a large population. Well, large Population relative to the resource is uh, is occurring in successful ways, and uh, this scientist went out and just documented it. And uh, whereas Hardman is talking about so much theoretical, like I I know there can be real life examples found for both, but. the 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 real life examples in tragedy of the commons the only one that he actually um lays out is the concept of um parking meters he talks about one town basically one day saying oh we're gonna nobody has to pay for parking and the idea was this was supposed to allow people to park around the holiday season uh freely and and uh not be a burden for people, but when what ended up happening was people just parked their vehicles for a long period of times nobody could find parking because there was no incentive for people to leave their parking spots it it turned out to be a mess that that was his 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 real life example um but the rest of his his argument is up there in the theoretical realm
0: and I would even say that that example is like like the it goes to represent like a failed scenario of what that other lady documented would be considered like a successful case of sharing resources because one of those six pillars was you know, understanding what the consequences are if you are misusing those resources. So in that example, it, like I think what that showcases to me is that that lady's, model is much better and more thorough in terms of its analysis because it accounts for those types of situations where, okay, in that parking meter scenario that that guy brings up, uh, yes, that is a failure, but it's because of these reasons that it doesn't meet a um, one of these pillars of having a transparent way of documenting um, things that are done wrong and then the consequences that result from it. And I think it it really goes back to kind of like her main like premise of um, that we have shared resources of, amongst many populations, amongst many communities, and there are real life examples of it being done successfully. And... If you look at humans by nature, if you believe in evolution, then you would almost argue that humans have um, almost evolved to share their resources in a way where everybody can win. Because we are social creatures. We are ones that gravitate towards communities. So by nature, that requires sharing. So it's almost within our our genetics to to share, to share resources. Obviously, you know, yeah, there are situations where greed and things come into play, but within human nature, it's like, what's the biggest thing that you can do to somebody in prison is put them in solitary confinement and remove them from others. So again, it goes back to this idea of, it's a, it's a more true analysis of human nature to say that we are able to share resources and when you look at, for example, how that other professor went in to actually look at data, I think it's really important to look at empirical data versus theoretical because it's almost like the other guy, he was approaching things from like a more theoretical uh, point of view, whereas this, um, what was the other professor's name Was the other doctor's name?
1: So o- Ostrom, Ostrom, she was the scientist that was looking at the real-world examples. Ostrom, yeah. yeah. So her,
0: her study seems like it was much more um, focused on the empirical data and also much more thorough in terms of the models and, and the principles of what governs successful sharing of resources, which is um, important. And it's been done but obviously there's 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 kind of it's pending on these variables being met for things to uh, go successfully because obviously humans are capable of war and evil and killing each other for resources and stealing as well so you know you can't discredit that as well so there's these conditions have to be met in order for the successful sharing to take place but to say that successful sharing cannot take place because we're always out for personal gains it's just um really dismissive of human nature when you look at it from that point of view that i just described it there
1: yeah uh uh-huh we are or we have a history humans have a history of tribalism Uh, which in this tribal nature of uh, tribes going uh, against each other, but there is also the reality that the tribes formed in the first place, the idea that it was beneficial in maximizing the goods, I would argue, of any given person to be in a tribe. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yes, there is a... you know, a a force that the, 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 the tribal force where you go attack another tribe that is negative to, um, to, uh, resource allocation. Uh, but the, there is this very human built in, uh, component to, to gather in a group and that, and, and doing that And divide up how how you're going to manage resources in that group for the benefit of all.
0: And 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 counterintuitively, that almost means that to maximize your resources, you actually have to maximize other people's resources because you, by helping others maximize their resources, if you're helping a blacksmith maximize his resources then he's going to maximize your resources by providing you with the product that he's able to provide you that you wouldn't otherwise have been able to provide for yourself because no one person can do everything, and that's why we have a divisions of labor and, and whatnot. So, again, it just goes to show how just fundamentally flawed this this guy's way of thinking was because by maximizing other people's resources, it would go kind of counter towards his Premise, Like, no, we need to uh, minimize uh, resources. We can't uh, maximize um, two variables or, you know, by, by maximizing for one, we're minimizing for another, uh, this and that. But in, in reality, when you look at, again, not just the theory, but how things have played out in real life, you do see how maximizing of the, the goods and the wealth of others truly benefits you as well because by making others richer they can in turn make you richer and it's counterintuitive but it's it's essentially what society is built upon because we have a division of special of specialities specialization there's we we make the uh, miners rich so the miners can help the producers and manufacturers become rich so they can help um th- people uh the consumers become rich by being able to access jobs which maybe they weren't so it was like uh, it's continual maximization of goods for everyone and um yeah as it really to, to me again goes to show how fundamentally flawed this whole tragedy of the commons thing is and we need to start pushing back on it and first principles i'm glad we could take a look at this much taught much widely circulated piece of dare I say, socialist propaganda.
1: Basically. <laughs> basically. A, a flawed argument. Yes. At the end of the day. At um, best. At best. At and, best. You know, it would be one thing for it to be flawed and have, um, you know, conclusions that aren't so uh, void of morality, but the, the sad reality is that the conclusions that hardman makes are um are are pretty rough yeah <laughs> put it lightly. yeah, yeah. Uh, he 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 says basically uh he's advocating for you know people to relinquish their freedom uh for people to of of having kids he's asking for government Yeah, we'd
0: even get to like that that crazy shit That, that is like, what... He, dude let me we could even freaking oh la la. You know what yeah t- talk about that stuff. What? I wanted to wrap it up but that well, stuff is good too. Yeah. Well honestly. so this
1: is this is quite literally the last paragraph of the tragedy of the commons and Hardman writes The only way we can preserve and nurture others and more preciously freedom is by relinquishing the freedom to breed. And that very soon no <laughs> the only
0: way that we can save freedom is by taking it away from people like <laughs> you see what i saying? this guy's just evil bro this guy just straight you sorry go ahead <laughs> no, I, really, like,
1: I, I can't even disagree he's uh uh yeah that is a messed up and it continues quote freedom is the recognition of necessity And it is the role of education to reveal to all the necessity of abandoning the freedom to breed. Only so can we put an end to this aspect of the tragedy of the commons
0: wow wow like, oh, wow <laughs> this guy must have been the life of the party <laughs> when, when this dude walked in people must have been turned. oh yo they're, they're,
1: oh Hardman's here okay yeah. let's get yeah, some tell distance. us that story yeah. Yeah, tell us that one story yeah. that you had
0: about like the how everybody was like out for their own self individual interests and how we're all gonna like die due to geometric growth tell that one again bro <laughs> it really it's it's a real party starter <laughs> oh, that one man. a real icebreaker that one Yeah, but uh, another example of how wrong this guy was where you look at his um, end conclusion. Okay, stop breeding. Well, look at China and how well that's turned out to them because now via their one-child policy and how that's totally shifted their population demographics where they have a huge aging um, demographic that needs to be supported by a growing working class which is less and less existent and that's not only the case in China but it's the case in the west as well which has suppressed its birth rate via just naturally stopping natural reasons as opposed to government intervention unless it's still taking place and with, uh, with the Chinese example what you see is that people are less willing to then once you have a generation of just one uh, of, of a single child without siblings, then they are less willing to themselves have more kids as well because they have grown up with that essentially that that paradigm. That we have a generation of of kids that have grown up in that paradigm. They're a single child. They got everything they wanted. Super seclusionary. Super. They don't. Isolated. Know,
1: they don't. Know, they don't know anything better or they don't anything, know anything different. Better
0: or anything different. And then.
1: on top of that, it's. Uh this, I understand to be the case, is that under that policy, there was a decision made by some parents to uh, have more men. There was more boys. So the the proportion of me- males to females in the population yeah. was distorted, which currently has now resulted in uh, more men than there are women, which has also changed the dynamics of relationships and yeah. marriage. And so the, much issues uh, com- with competition that. Competition for a wife and um, – so it completely disrupts the the uh the human experience in mm-hmm. terms of of having that uh, a fair opportunity to find somebody you know have a kid with them all that type of thing that that we take for granted in other places that haven't had government control over breeding for lack of a better word yeah mm-hmm.
0: it's uh yeah it, it, and one thing that um, I want to go back to in terms of why they they realize that this is really wrong is. Again, when you have a growing population, an aging population, you need a strong working class, a strong population, the working class in order to support them um, because you have Social Security and you have pensions and all these things that the government pays out. Well, you need that via taxes that are collected from the people that are working. So if you have less people working, then that support for those older folks isn't going to come and that is not a problem that only is going to take place in China but it's pretty much all over the world and there's something actually even Elon Musk came out recently and he talked about of, of how we don't have an overpopulation problem it's an underpopulation problem because again with this aging uh, population where we have a higher demographic of people that are, are retiring, less people consuming, um, less people um, contributing to the economy. So then now all the pensions that need to be paid out to those growing people is coming from less and less people. So now we need to increase taxes so that we're, get, we're getting, we're still able to provide for that pie. But as that pie continues to grow, as more and more people enter that older demographic, as they age and retire and there's less people to support them, at the base at the working class then that pie percentage of the pie that's to be taken is more and more and more from the working class which is shrinking so it just creates like all these freaking problems of over taxation and then uh, stopping g- growth and you want to talk about um, and um, economic sustainability then yeah, that the, then you can come into huge issues with that there. But actually, I want to take it back even one step further because one thing that you that you said that I wanted to touch on, but I totally forgot, but it just came back to me now, was about um, what's his face? The um, yeah, we can't teach people what to th- uh what to think, but how to think. I would say no, yet- no,
1: I I I, what I said was. The point of education should be to teach people how to think, not what to think, but so often teaches people what to think.
0: Right. So I would say that I don't agree with that fully. And here's why, because I do agree, yes, education needs to teach uh, students how to think. This is true, Uh, because we need to, you know, teach them again, like what, what, like, kind of what we're doing here first principles analysis understanding how arguments are, are made and how things are built off of each other and how to understand something you really need to under uh go to the core of, uh, underlying values and principles that the uh, overall argument is based on so of course this is like a method of thinking how to think but i would also then argue that teaching people what to think is also true in the sense that we do need to teach um, kids what is right and wrong. We do need to, which is fundamentally what the role of a parent is to their child, right? They're not just teaching them how to behave or like how to think about things and in some abstract manner they're teaching them what framework. to do exactly a moral framework so similarly even in education we teach people that um you know racism is bad right we're not teaching them uh like the abstract ideas around this or i don't know the the countering narrative or of why racism could be good because we're just we're just not going to entertain that we're just going to say racism is bad and that's that you know and similarly there are many subjects where we do need to p- teach people what to think but i guess the issue becomes where do you draw that line of like when is it enough to teach them what to think and at what point is it just you need to step back and teach them how to how to think yeah that?
1: that is uh i agree with that and that is a, a tricky um a a tricky thing to do because you everybody is going to be at a different uh, spot in terms of their ability to analyze things and in their understanding of how to think and given the structure of education um, there's a you you might be in the same grade or you might be in the same year university but uh, there's going to be a range of people are ready to think about one idea over another idea and it's you know, so you – you something like uh, Hardin's essay, I would have actually less problem with it being introduced in, let's say, fourth-year engineering with uh, greater context, more chance to discuss even maybe an essay written uh, by students about what they th- – of a critique mm-hmm. of his thinking. I think it's – uh not the correct move to introduce his work to a first-year engineering student because as you know then this this comes a problem because i could see other parents being like who who are you to say when this bit of content or this guy these thoughts are presented to to somebody i just think the uh that if if ed, four years of education within engineering teaches you about uh, many principles in mathematics, the scientific method, um, applied engineering, if you don't even have a basis for any of these, but you're already given uh, an argument to analyze that uses some of those, it's kind of, you know, it, it, too soon. You're putting one thing ahead of the other. You teach them the principles Provide them uh, an opinion, an argument that came from some aspects of those principles.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like build off of that. Build off of that. Build off of it. I think that's key. That's key. All right, man. We talked a lot today. We talked of sustainability. We gave a definition for sustainability or at least hopefully we gave our idea of what sustainability could be and how it's, um, from my opinion anyways, I don't know if I can visit Elliot, but how sustainability really needs to be only used when it comes to how we're disposing of waste and how we're disposing of, uh, how we're managing waste into the environment to make sure that the environment is being managed and it is and the waste is being disposed in a sustainable manner so that we don't lose that environmental asset. That's one. And then in terms of our environmental sustainability, or sorry, our sustainable consumption of renewable resources such as wood and forestry, lumber. it is uns- it, it does not make sense to use sustainability when we're talking about extracting finite resources, because by definition, we are limiting the abilities of future generations to access those goods so by definition it is unsustainable and uh then we discussed the tragedy of the commons and some issues with it some flaws and some rebuttals to it and how it's kind of lacking in substance and we really need to stop teaching it in universities and indeed 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 any anything else we we missed there Elliot?
1: No, I just want to direct everybody to check out our website, firstprinciplespodcast.com. There you can find all our episodes. Um, and uh, if you like what you're hearing and you want to contribute to uh, to the podcast, to us, to keep us putting out this type of content, there is a donate button. You click on that, it takes you to PayPal and uh any amount um, that, you know, you f- feel feel fit is greatly appreciated. Um, you know, we enjoy having these conversations and uh, hope you get value from for, from them. Um, and if you can send some value back our way, we'd absolutely love that.
0: Yes. Go to firstprinciplespodcast.com. Click donate and you can donate whatever you like, whatever it is. We will appreciate it. Thank you very much. And break down from the ground up. From the ground up.